if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts 4, verse 32, all the way to Acts 5, verse 11. You know, before we dive into this today, I got to say a couple of things to set this up. One of the reasons why I love preaching through books of the Bible, which is what we do the majority of the time here at Frontline, is that I know I know I have a propensity towards cowardice. I know that there are just things I don't want to stand up in front of a crowd of people and talk about. Um, I don't want to stand up today in my own flesh and talk about a time in the New Testament church where God the Holy Spirit showed up by killing two people, right? Like I didn't wake up last week thinking, what do I want to preach on? The story of Ananias and Sapphira. That'll fire people up. And so one of the healthy disciplines of a church is to recognize that it's the job of pastors and elders to give the people of God the full counsel of God. And that's one of the things that the apostle Paul said to the church at Ephesus. He said, hey, I was among you and I delivered you the full counsel of God. So nobody's blood's on my hands. And so one of the things that's really beautiful about preaching through books of the Bible and just going verse by verse is that we can avoid just sort of camping out on the things we want to talk about and we can get a more full picture of who God is and what the church is and we can actually lean into some things that are difficult. So today we're going to be in a passage that does talk about a man and a woman who lie to God, the Holy Spirit, and who in their hypocrisy have the potential of fracturing and dissolving the power of the church from the inside of the church. What's interesting is there's always resistance to the church from the outside. So that's persecution and that's times of difficulty and that's the world and that's criticism and all kinds of things that come from the outside. But there's also always danger on the inside of the church. And in fact, sometimes the most insidious danger is from the inside, the danger of division, the danger of disunity, the danger of hypocrisy, the danger of losing a sense of the grace of God and becoming hypocritical, pharisaical people. And so in Acts chapter four, we get this beautiful snapshot of God, the Holy Spirit working in the church to bring about unity and worship that demonstrates the kingdom of God. And then in Acts chapter five, we get this picture of the danger within the church and how God responds to that danger. Now, before we open this up and read it, I think it's really important just to remind everybody that one of the big ideas in the book of Acts that comes up again and again and again is this idea of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is king and he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth And the church is to be this kingdom outpost in the world surrounded by competing kingdoms that gives people a taste of what it looks like when people receive God as king. So Jesus is Lord, he's alive, he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And the church is in some ways this signpost that points to this is what it looks like when human beings no longer worship in the kingdom of self or no longer worship the kingdom of money, or no longer worship the kingdom of pleasure, but actually worship Jesus and are a part of his kingdom. And so what happens with the church that's surrounded by all kinds of kingdoms is the church becomes this sign. It becomes this foretaste of what it looks like and what it will perfectly look like one day when Jesus returns for people to be able to thrive and flourish even in the midst of difficulty when Jesus is king. Now, we can't talk about a kingdom. We can't get a full grasp of what it means to be kingdom people under the authority of King Jesus in the world if we don't talk about kingdom economics. Economics and kingdoms kind of go together. And if you have a kingdom of self, 
your economic structure is going to flow out of that kingdom. Does that make sense? So the way you work and the way you consume and what you spend on is going to reflect the kingdom that you're a part of. And the same thing's true with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God brings an economic structure that actually points to the beauty and superiority of Jesus in all things. And so when we talk today about the kingdom of God, what Luke is trying to flesh out for us is a glimpse of kingdom economics that actually point to discipleship that touches folks' hearts that then touches the way that they spend their money. Now, the Bible's really clear that money is incredibly powerful. Money's super powerful. And money's not intrinsically powerful. It's not that there's magic inside of money or gold or jewels. It's not that in and of themselves, currency is powerful, but currency is really powerful. Treasure's really powerful because it has the ability to do two things in a super profound way. Money does two things simultaneously. Money starts to shape what you love by the direction that you point it. And money reveals what you love based on the direction that you point it. So money is super formative. Um, Where you're pointing your spending is gonna actually start to shape and affect the affections of your heart. Jesus put it like this. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So money has this profound power to actually shape you and mold you based on the direction that you throw your money. Now, money also has the power to reveal what your heart already desires, what your heart already wants. And what's so crazy about deep discipleship is that following Jesus, loving Jesus, following in his footsteps is not about external behavior modification. So if you're not a Christian today, the next step for you is not to get like a punch card with a bunch of box for you to check off that are all external Christian habits and traits. Like that's not Christian discipleship to divorce, to divorce external behavior from what actually happens in the depths of your soul. Christian discipleship always aims at the heart of the disciple so that as the heart starts to change and shift, the behaviors of our lives start to follow suit. And what Luke is going to do here as he talks about money is he's going to give us a really profound picture of how kingdom economics are really about what it is that you love. Money and what you love go together. And what starts to happen is the more you see the good news of the gospel and the more it grabs you and the more you're captivated by the grace of God and the mercy of God, the more the economics of your life start to be shaped by those things that you love. And today, if you don't love Jesus or if there are all kinds of competing loves that are sort of on an equal playing field with Jesus, the way you spend is going to reveal that. And what you spend is going to fight against that or it's going to strengthen that. And so um, what we're talking about today with kingdom economics is in some way just basic discipleship 101. What you spend on will help you determine what you love and what you love will help determine what you spend on. One author who's one of my favorite guys right now is a guy named James K.A. Smith, who is a, he's a philosophy professor that does some great work on just worldview and how the gospel should shape philosophy. And he wrote a great book called You Are What You Love. And to get a sense of what we're talking about, I just want to read a little bit of this book to you. He writes this. So again, it's a question not of what you, excuse me. So again, it's a question not of whether you long for some version of the kingdom, but of which kingdom you long for. 
Remember we said the church is this kingdom outpost surrounded by kingdoms. Everybody is wired by God as an image bearer to love and to worship and to participate in a kingdom. There are all kinds of kingdoms at work in this room today. There's one ultimate kingdom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the kingdom that you're longing for today. He goes on and he writes this. This is true for any human being. It is a structural feature of human creatureliness. You can't not love. It's why the heart is the seat and fulcrum of the human person. It's the engine that drives our existence. We are lovers first and foremost. If we think about this in terms of the quest or journey metaphor, we might say that the human heart is part compass and part internal guidance system. The heart is like a multifunctional desire device that is part engine and part homing beacon, operating under the hood of our consciousness, so to speak, our default autopilot. The longings of the heart, listen to this, the longings of the heart both point us in the direction of a kingdom and propel us to it. Remember we said that the thing about money that makes it so powerful is where you point your money starts to shape what you love and where you point your money reveals what you love. That's what he's talking about with the heart as this compass. There is a resonance between the telos, that's the end for which you were created. There's a resonance between the telos to which we are oriented and the longings and desires that propel us in that direction, like the magnetic power of the pole working on the existential needle of your heart. You are what you love because you live towards what you want. So kingdom economics are not about just memorizing a list of rules so that you can default to those rules externally with your giving or with your spending or with how you approach your job. Kingdom economics are really about having the compass of your heart, right? The needle of your heart that since the day you were born has been pointing at kingdoms that aren't the kingdom of God, and it's been worshiping things that aren't God. Kingdom economics is about the needle of your heart being reoriented by the grace of God to point at Jesus and his kingdom. And what starts to happen with kingdom economics is as the needle of your heart, as the compass of your heart starts to see Jesus rightly and love Jesus more fully, what starts to happen is that profoundly shapes the way you work, the way you consume, the way you spend, the way you give. So take your Bibles. Let's look at this together. Acts chapter four, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them for as many were as were owners of lands or houses sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. uh, We're going to talk more about him as we continue on in Acts. 
a Levi and a native of Cyprus sold a field belonging to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So stop there for just a second. Here's this snapshot of discipleship and how discipleship starts to change your desires so that where you're pointing your money is towards the kingdom of God. It's this beautiful picture of love and affection for Jesus, worship of Jesus, actually having profound practical implications on how you spend and how you look at treasure. Now, it doesn't stop there. It actually is going to give us the flip side. So pick up chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds And he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. I imagine so. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Okay, let let me just say up front before we get into explaining this, we're not going to take a second offering today. So, so just, just breathe, right? Like that's not how we're going to land this deal. But what we are going to do is we're just going to take a little bit of time. And I want to give you five things that jump out of this text that should shape our view of the kingdom of God and economics. Five things. The first thing I want you to see is that kingdom economy is not communal ownership. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom economy is not communal ownership. Now, here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, a native of Cyprus, verse 37, sold a field that what? This is participatory. That belonged to him. He sold a field that belonged to him. Now, skip down to verse 3 of chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, look at these words, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Okay, this is really important. When we talk about kingdom economics, what's happened historically in some denominations and churches and movements is they've read this text and they've landed with this sort of legislated Christian communism. So kingdom economics to them means it's communal ownership. Nobody owns property. Everybody takes a vow of poverty. We all just sort of put whatever we have in the middle pot, and then somebody distributes that to everybody evenly. And basically what we have is a Christian form of communism or socialism. Now, the problem with that is that this text is really clear that 
Barnabas actually owned the property and then sold it. And Peter rebukes Ananias by saying, hey, when it was in your possession, it belonged to you. And then after you sold it, the money was at your disposal. This is not Christian communism. And this is super important for a couple of reasons. It's important, first of all, because the church doesn't emphasize or the gospel doesn't emphasize the church being the same economically. One of the things that's beautiful about the church is the diversity of the church. And the diversity of the church includes races and backgrounds and ages, but it also includes different socioeconomic levels. And what the Bible's really clear about, and this is so critically important, what the Bible's really clear about is that sometimes there are rich disciples that love Jesus and walk in obedience with their money. And sometimes there's really poor disciples that love Jesus and walk in obedience with their money. And this is super important because it's really unhelpful when churches start to hold up the rich and say, hey, if you're not rich, that means that God's not favored you. So if you're poor, you don't have enough faith. If you're poor, God obviously hasn't blessed you. You're a second-class citizen to the wealthy. Or in other times, what the church does is sort of Shane Claibornizes the rich and says, hey, if, if you have anything, then you're a bad Christian. If you have a good job, if you actually have savings. And, and here's what's so crazy and beautiful about the gospel. The gospel has this beautiful force and power known as grace to invite people that have great jobs, that are in positions of power, that do have money, to love and follow Jesus with their wealth and with their work. And simultaneously, and this is the great message of the book of James, and simultaneously say to the poor among us, hey, you're not poor in the eyes of God. If you have Jesus, you have everything. So what happens in the church is through the gospel, the rich and the poor experience the equalizing power of grace and they get to call each other brother and sister. So it's not Christian communism. Hey, if you've been blessed with a job where you have a lot of income or you've been blessed with an inheritance or you've been blessed to be able to lead employees, like you got to figure out not how do you necessarily renounce all of the wealth that God's given you, but how do you steward it for the glory of God? And if you're poor among us, man, like we have so many homeless men and women that are a part of our church and so many single moms in Edmond and South OKC and Shawnee. And if you're really poor, if you're struggling to make ends meet, and today you just opened up your pantry to figure out what you're going to serve your kids for dinner. And it's like one expired package of ramen noodles, which I don't even know if those can expire. That's probably <laughs> never going to happen. And you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. Here's what the gospel would say to you you actually are not going to be despised in the church. You're going to be received as a co-heir of the promises of God and as an equal to the people that might have more than you. It's not Christian communism. Secondly, though, so if that sort of makes the more liberal-leaning folks in the church mad, let me make the more conservative folks in the church mad. In addition to that, kingdom economy isn't about private ownership either. Like the gray aspiration of the kingdom of God is not unfettered capitalism. It's not make as much as you can make. And by God, if you have the capacity to make more money, it's because you deserve it. Therefore, get all you can, step on whoever you need to step on. And among you in the church and in the world, those that don't have as much, um, you can just sort of look down on them for being lazy. No, it's not 
private ownership either. Look at verse 32 of chapter four. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's unity and love and family. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. They might've belonged to them, but they weren't saying that they were their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. And listen to this. This is crazy. This is the church functioning as the church. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is so beautiful. Here's this picture, not of communal ownership and not of private ownership being ultimate, but it's a picture of a different way altogether. It's a picture of the third reality that kingdom economy is always about stewardship. It's always about stewardship. It's always about recognizing that Jesus is king. You're not king. Jesus owns everything, including you. That's stewardship. And if you've been entrusted with the lot, you've been entrusted with the lot that belongs to Jesus, not you. And if you've been entrusted with the very little, you've been entrusted with the little that belongs to Jesus and not you. And the response of a disciple is not, hey, what do I want to do with my money? The response of a disciple is literally every breath I take belongs to Jesus. Every dime in my bank account belongs to Jesus. If I have one house, it's his. Two houses, they're his. Two cars, they're his. And they're all at his disposal. And I have to literally hold everything with open hands before the king. Now, am I just making this up or is that in the text? Let me try to show you. Look again at verse 33. This is the key. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Two things that shaped this radical stewardship of the early church. The first is Jesus is the resurrected Lord. What Luke is highlighted throughout the different sermons and acts that we've already looked at and that we will look at is that Jesus beat sin through his cross. He beat the kingdom of darkness through his cross and he even beat death through his resurrection. And now he's reigning and ruling at the right hand of the father. He is the capital K king of everything and everything that's been created was created by him and for him. So when this says that they were paying attention to the apostles speaking of the resurrection of the Lord, what's starting to happen is their view of Jesus is shifting and they're starting to see the supremacy of Christ in everything. That he, Christian, listen to me, he, Christian, bought you with a price. So it's personal and it's cosmic. Like that planet on the farthest edge of the universe, listen to me, John chapter one says, Jesus made it. He made it. That oil reserve at the bottom of whatever country that you might look at, Jesus created it. It belongs to him. From the farthest reaches of the universe to the smallest cells in your body, every mineral deposit, every organism in this world belongs to Jesus. And it's cosmic, but it's also so infinitely personal when the Bible says you were bought with a price, you're not your own. Like, that's just a breathtaking thing that we don't even think about as Christians in America. You're not your own. 
And what's crazy is God didn't like come up with a bargain to buy you and me on the cheap. In fact, he overbought us. The price that he paid for us was the infinite price of his son bleeding in our place for our sins, being crushed for our sins, paying the ultimate price by giving his life in exchange for his enemies. Therefore, Jesus as the resurrected Lord means, hey, stewardship is recognizing everything belongs to Jesus quite literally. Quite literally. The clothes on your back, not yours. Whatever's in your wallet, not yours. Your house, not yours. Body, not yours. Your talents, not yours. But secondly, stewardship is also realizing that everything's grace. Everything's grace. In creation, it's all grace. And in new creation or redemption, it's all grace. This Christian community, it says, had great grace upon them. What does this mean? Well, it means a couple of things. It means, first of all, we actually live in a gift-oriented universe. We don't live in a universe that's a meritorious universe. So here's what I mean. Like karma is not the driving force or factor in the universe. It's just not. In fact, the driving force and factor in the universe is the living God who is the father of lights. And here's what the Bible says. Every good thing is a gift from him. So here's what's crazy. Right now, God in his grace through the natural systems, but still under his sovereign authority, God in his grace is the one that's actually managing the algae blooms in the ocean so that the plankton can feed so that other forms of life can feed. He's managing that in his grace. He's the one that's sustaining mountain goats at the top of the peak. And he's the one that's making sure that the ecosystems of this world are staying on track. He's the one that in his grace and love gives everything needed for human beings. And here's what's so crazy about him. He's so great, he even causes the sun to rise on the wicked. That's grace. It's a gift-oriented universe we live in. And not only is it a gift-oriented universe, but salvation is a gift. It's like God didn't look at you and say, hey, you're really trying hard and you're really seeking hard and I'm really impressed and now I'm gonna show you about Jesus. God looked at you and you couldn't do anything for yourself spiritually. If you're a Christian, like you weren't like the old evangelism analogy that you're drowning in the ocean and the gospel's this life raft and all you have to do is grab it. That's the stupidest evangelism analogy ever. Because Paul says in Romans and Ephesians, you weren't drowning, you were spiritually dead. If you want to use an ocean analogy, you were on the bottom of the ocean, rotting and scavengers were eating your flesh. And God in his mercy, not through any merit of your own, not through your good deeds, not because of good deeds you would do or have done, simply because he's amazing, Jesus is awesome, looked at you and said, mine. He rescued you and he lavished his kindness on you. So here's what this means. If it's a gift-oriented universe and if salvation is a total gift of grace, then that means that stewardship is realizing that we have been given a lot of stuff to handle and use, but none of it belongs to us. And in gratitude for all the grace, we start to hold it more like this than like this. Because it's a gift-oriented universe, the old popular way of seeing yourself, if you're successful, of, well, yeah, I just worked harder than other people. Well, 
Like you also weren't in charge of where you were born to have the opportunities that you have. That was a gift of grace. Oh, but I'm just smarter than other people and I studied harder. Like, do you honestly expect us to believe that you can claim your IQ is something that you like rose to and created out of nothing? If you're really smart, that was something God created. Your talents, you can't claim any of that. See, in a gift-oriented universe and with salvation being a gift of grace, what starts to happen for Christians is they start to see, okay, Jesus is the resurrected Lord, which means he's king and I'm not. And everything is a gift. And that means whatever he's entrusted to me, I got to hold open to him and, and know that he's actually doing something bigger than just building my kingdom of self. And that's what happens to these people. They start sharing. They start honoring one another. So let me give you a few grids. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me give you four things to think about with every dime you spend. First and foremost in this text is you should think about the beauty and glory of God in Christ Jesus. Giving should flow out of worship. Spending should flow out of worship. Like, Jesus, you are so great, and yet you condescend to stoop and take on flesh and love me and rescue me. You're amazing. I want to worship you. I want to worship you with my words, and I want to worship you with my heart, and I want to worship you with my checkbook. Secondly, we should think about his mission. So these people are worshiping Jesus with their giving, and then they're on mission. They're like, okay, the church is advancing the mission of God by telling people the good news of Jesus, and we want to make sure that that mission keeps going forward. This is why throughout the book of Acts, you have churches that are actually taking contributions to plant more churches and to alleviate the suffering of the poor and to make sure that the mission goes forward. So it's like, okay, um, I want to worship, and I want to remember that the point of resources is not just consuming on self, but it's the advancement of the glory of God on mission. The third thing that should shape our use of resources is Jesus's love for his people. Like, how awesome is it that Jesus meets the need of poor people in Jerusalem through other people in the city that had resources being willing to share? Like, that's so beautiful. That's a picture of Christ's love for people. I was talking to a couple that leads a community group in our Edmond congregation a couple weeks ago. And they mentioned somebody that was really struggling in their group financially, going through a lot of pain and difficulty, and how the rest of the people in their group just totally rallied to help them budget and to plan and to get out of debt and to walk with them and to serve them and to cover meals. Like it was this beautiful picture of what we just read about. This is actually happening in little pockets of our church where people that have been blessed with a lot are meeting the needs of people in our church in relationship to the glory of God. We want to see more of that. And then lastly, lest you think it's like this, this totally ascetic lifestyle where it's like you have to wear wool and go around bummed out if you're a Christian. Like our, our spending and our giving should be about God's glory. It should be about his mission. It should be about his people. But it's also about recognizing that he wants to provide for your good and the good of your family. It's, it's a good thing if you have resources to take your wife on a date. That's a good thing. It's a good thing if you have the resources to take your family and spend time with your kids and be able to bless them. Like, it's a good thing to be able to get a new pair of shoes for a kid that's got holes in their shoes. Are you tracking with me? So it's like, it's not that God looks down and says, oh man, I gave you that to steward and you're actually eating on some of that. 
It's more about the posture of the heart that says, okay, it all belongs to Jesus. And a great place to start with my obedience is recognizing it's all his. And I want to at least start thinking through percentage giving where like, I want to grow into at least 10% going directly to the mission of God. That's just a wise, good place to start. But then it's also recognizing it's all his and he can call on it at any time. And he's allowing you to receive the blessing and benefit of it. So kingdom economics, it's this beautiful reality that's not about communal ownership and it's not about private ownership. It's about stewardship. Jesus is the boss. It's his stuff and he's entrusted you some measure of his stuff for the advancement of his glory, his mission, his people, and your family. Amen? Now, can I wrap this up really quickly with two things? Two things that I wanna hit and we're done. Fourth, I just wanna say There has never been a perfect church and there never will be a perfect church on this side of heaven. When we're all dead and with Jesus and he removes sin, there will be no hypocrisy. There'll be no jacked up gossiping Christians. Until that day, there has never been an ideal church. This church we just read about had the apostle Peter preaching. That would be pretty rad, right? Like, can you imagine being in a Bible study and being so close to the time that Jesus lived that you were like talking about Jesus and somebody raises their hands and says, oh yeah, I was there when he fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. It was amazing, right? Like this church was incredible. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. This is a beautiful moment in the history of the church. But guess what? There's still hypocrisy. Satan is still working inside of the church to fill people's hearts with things that are destructive for the church. I think this just means like you should be a bit more charitable instead of being quick to criticize and judge this church and other churches. We should be really quick to recognize that if we ever found a perfect church, we would run it by joining it. We, we would bring our sin. We would bring our problems. And therefore this church is an ideal. Our church is an ideal and there will not be an ideal church until we're in glory and sins removed from us. In fact, can I just say, man, like, don't let it surprise you that Christians are jacked up. There are people that have raised their hand and said, oh man, I am so broken and sinful and lost. I can't save myself by any of my own means. And I throw myself on the grace of God. It's like, are Christians jacked up? They are so jacked up. We are messed up people, man. We we are people that wrestle with anxiety and depression and addiction and sin and fear and all kinds of problems. And the thing that brings us together is not that we're like a club for good people getting gooder. What brings us together is that we are so without hope and God rescued us through the cross of Jesus. So yes, we need to grow in holiness, yes. And yes, hypocrisy is really serious. And that's why in this text, the big problem with Ananias and Sapphira is not that they just didn't give the full amount. They could have held back some if they wanted to, according to what Peter just said. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira is that hypocrisy has gripped them to such a degree, listen to me, that they're not lying to people. They're lying to God. They see Barnabas give, and for some reason, the needle of their heart that points to what they love, instead of pointing at Jesus, it's pointing to something that's probably related to having respect and esteem in the community or a bit of notoriety or being seen as more righteous than what they were. 
And so in their hypocrisy, they try to razzle-dazzle God and the church. They lie to God and God moves in judgment and he actually purifies and cleanses his church by an act of discipline that actually, if they were Christians, takes them home. I think that there's a couple things that we should think about with this as we close. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I think when we talk about the fear of God, it's easy to say, well, fear is just awe. It's like seeing God's glory. And and that's true. Like the fear of God is wanting his will more than anything else. But there's also a sense in which the fear of God is really recognizing that God is not a man that he should be trifled with. Like he shouldn't be taken flippantly. One of my favorite documentaries in fact, I shouldn't have just said that because now I'm going to get emails after you guys watch it and hear all the cussing. Um, a documentary I've seen that I may or may not like <laughs> is, is the documentary Grizzly Man. Has anybody seen that? It's a story of this completely whacked out human being named Timothy Treadwell. And Treadmill, Treadwell sort of fancied himself a bear expert. And so he goes to live with grizzly bears in Alaska. And he takes these bears so lightly that he starts to give them names like Mr. Chocolate and ridiculous pet names. And he just lives with these grizzlies like they're not 2,000 pound predators. And he forgets what they are and he takes them lightly and he takes them flippantly until he and his girlfriend get eaten by grizzly bears. And, and I just think like, can I just say this about God? God is infinitely merciful. God, the Bible doesn't say God is wrath. It, said God, it says God is love. But to deny his holiness, to deny who he really is, to treat God like you can just sort of walk up to him, smack him in the face, lie to him, and walk away and everything be cool with you is a kind of flippancy and ignorance that could have devastating effects in your life. You can't play him. He's not a joke. He's the one that just spoke and things like great white sharks were created. He's so good and he's a father and he loves you and he sent Jesus to die on a cross for you to cover your sin. But just don't think that he's like a senile grandpa in heaven and you can just get over on him. Like you're just not going to get over on him. The fear of God is awe and it's worship and it's delight. And it's also saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to smack him on the face and then run away thinking everything's going to be okay. These people lie to God and the fear of God falls on everybody when the response of God is sort of drastic discipline to purify the church. Let's pray.